Uh, it's great to be able to share with you guys <clears throat> this morning. I'm going to apologize in advance. I've had a bit of a sinus thing the last couple of days. So <clears throat> if I do a lot of that, I apologize. Um, this weekend, I had uh, the privilege of taking in some of uh, W.R. Meyer's grad. And uh, we have a few students in our church who graduate this weekend. We have a number of students who will graduate over the next several weekends. Um, and uh, we'll look forward to celebrating all of them here at the church one Sunday as well, coming up in June. But it's always exciting and encouraging to see these students uh, excited about their next steps. And, uh, you know, one of the things about, about grad is that um, it's a season that brings about a sense of wonder and possibility, of exciting opportunities and new experiences, in a lot of ways, it's, a, it's the end of a chapter, but it's the beginning of, of something new. But that new chapter that begins is a chapter that really just releases you into the world in a lot of ways. And the world we live in is incredible. It's a canvas of God's beauty. It's proof of His goodness and His creative hand. But because of sin, it's also very broken, rotting, and corrupted. Uh, and as I, as I thought about grad this weekend, as I've spent time with some kids and some of the grad things that are coming up, that's come to my mind, is this releasing of, of people into the world in a lot of ways for the first time. And um, this morning, um, you know, I want to look at a, a section of scripture that may help us to continue to persevere in our faith. And uh, all of us have to navigate the beauty and the difficulty of the world we live in. It's not just for the young and the impressionable. Um, all of us as followers of Jesus live in a world that can be difficult at times, can be troubling and very difficult at times. Um, Jesus even tells us this truth. I have said these things to you, he says this in John, that in, my, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So I want to invite you this morning to turn to James chapter 4. And we're going to be in verse 13 all the way to chapter 5, 20. And uh, we're going to quickly go through a picture of faith in, that endures, that perseveres. Uh, and each one of us really is in a need of a faith like this. There's, there's so many things that, that as followers of Jesus we want to live out. But as we, in, as we go about our day in, in the world, we, there's part of persevering. There's part of a faith that perseveres. If we're going to make it to the end, if we're going to run a race, there has to be a faith that perseveres. So I'm going to invite you to follow along as I read in James chapter 4. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid treasure up in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be your yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise them up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This morning, as we we move forward, I want to look at how do we have a faith that perseveres. This past spring, uh, I, along with a friend of mine, led a conference, kind of a retreat for pastors in Banff. Uh, And at the heart of this gathering for pastors, it's about seeing pastors make it, finish the race, have longevity in ministry, and to be healthy. And, And you might not be aware of this, but pastoral burnout is on the rise. People are fleeing from ministry, um, contemplating leaving ministry uh, at, a, at a quite of an alarming late rate. The, the, the look of the landscape of the church, as far as pastoral ministry, could look very different in the next couple decades. But during our time together, I, I went on a walk with one pastor, a person that I've known for quite a while, who last year was, was very close to, to burnout, and I wanted just to check in, do a, do a one-on-one with them, see how they were doing. And uh, he was telling me that he was in this this mentor relationship that's been really helping with him. And, and lately they'd been going through the book of James. And he was telling me all of the things that he was so grateful for in this book. And how he's been challenged and encouraged by, by the word of God, uh, and particularly in this letter. And then we're walking down the street and he just stops. And he looks right at me and he says, Brett, I'm also really grateful that James only has five chapters. And he said, could you imagine... If he wrote 10, what about 20? Imagine the things that he would write to us. As you probably already gathered from reading this section, James can be a challenging letter, a challenging book. And this section this morning is challenging, and it's meant to be. So I want to say that from the the on-right. Not every book of the Bible is comforting, like the book of Ruth. Not every book of the Bible is simply encouraging, like the book of Philippians that Paul writes. 
Some, like James, are meant to challenge us, which is why the Word of God is so rich and nourishing, because it is designed and inspired by the Spirit to be living and active, and the way He ordained it to be comforting and challenging and convicting and instructive, all while clearly pointing to the person of Jesus and God's redemptive plan through Jesus is a really incredible thing to think about. But this morning, we're going to focus quickly on this challenging piece in chapter 4 to 5. And so I see seven characteristics of persevering faith here. So we're just going to go through each one quickly um, and get a picture of this. Starting in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 13 to 16. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. The first thing we see is we need need to be humble before a faithful and sovereign God. Business travel in the first century was actually quite common. That might surprise some of us because of how popular business travel is now, but it was quite common back then as well. And verse 13 pictures a businessman confidently planning to make their next business trip, to make profit in the future. And James calls <clears throat> taking, uh, talking about your business affairs as if they are certainties, as boasting or bragging. That is, doing things on your own strength without admitting a dependence on God. So James is warning us that we can become so consumed with material things and material purposes that thinking about our plans and our plots and our strategies or our work to make money, that we kind of become spiritually blind to the realities of our world. Now, the problem here is not planning. Planning is good. Some of you are like, I don't like planning. Planning is good in of itself. But planning in such a way that God has no place in your plans is what James is warning us of. James is referring to a situation where people are planning to do something to gain much more wealth in the coming year, when the reality is that they didn't even know if they will see tomorrow. These people acted as if all of their plans were certainties. Nothing could change them. But they were living in an arrogance, not acknowledging that their very breath could be taken away in an instant. That God is sovereign over life and death, not ourselves. And these people didn't understand this. And James says in verse 14, your life is like a vapor. Here one second, gone the next. And you and I will live until tomorrow only if the Lord wills it. It's a humbling reminder to us. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. God is sovereign over life and death and over our activities and our accomplishments. Verse 14 says, if the Lord wills, this is how we should think, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Everything we do, everything we are, everything we accomplish, everything we attain is ultimately under the sovereignty of God. Now it's important to note that the intent here is not to create an idea that God determines everything. Therefore, we just kind of sit at home and show up on Sundays and don't do anything. That's not the point that James is making. And even in his own context of this letter, James is very clear about giving plenty of commands to obey, but plenty of instructions of actions to live out as believers. James talks about activity throughout his letter. 
to live out your faith, but he is talking about activity that is humbly dependent on God. Something that if we're going to do it, we need God to help us, to stir in us. Every activity, literally every breath, is acknowledging that I am alive and I'm working only by the grace of God. The point for us is to have a mindset that says, I need the grace of God and I'm fully dependent on the will of God in every facet of my life. And this is describing a radically different way to approach the world that we live in than the world does. Particularly in our busyness and our business. And we can all get guilty of getting busy. The world tells us to live like we're going to be here forever. Urges us to make our plans. To do our will. Acquire our possessions and our work. And build our portfolios in our small kingdoms and empires. But instead, James says, no, submit to God. Live and plan and work like your life is short and like you don't want to waste it on worldly things. Live like you want to spend your life humbly before the sovereignty of God and ultimately for the glory of God. The second thing we see is that we need to have an obedience to the will of God. Verse 17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him is sin. If we are to have humble submission to God's will, we also need to have humble obedience to God's will. And James gives us a much-needed perspective to the North American church on sin. We normally think of sin in terms of commission, things that we commit, things that we do. We, do, we don't do the things God has told us not to do. God says don't lie, so we don't lie. God says don't covet, so we don't covet. This is generally how we see sin, how we teach sin, how we instruct sin to the younger generation. But James reminds us that just as serious as lying or coveting or sexual morality or whatever else, that doing anything else that God has said not to do are sins of omission, which is disregarding what God has commanded to do. Hearing a command of God and not following it. And we can take James's letter as an example. In chapter 2, he says, don't show favoritism. Favoritism is forbidden. So it would be a sin of commission to show favoritism. But he also tells us in chapter 1 to care for the needy. And by not doing so, this would be a sin of omission. You might say, aren't the bad things that Jesus tells us not to do more important? Like, Fleeing from this, don't do slander, lying, sexual morality, all of those things, murder. Isn't it more important that we don't do those things than maybe missing a command or two? Well, in Matthew 25, in Jesus' narrative about the final judgment, people are cast into hell not by what they did. Not in that story. By what they didn't do. By not feeding the hungry. For not visiting the imprisoned. And so we see that sins of omission are just as serious as sins of commission. So you who know the right thing to do and fail to do it, it is sin. And this is important for us because if we are going to have a faith that perseveres, we have to be obedient to all of the things that God says and working towards continued obedience. His ways have to be his, has to be our ways. Our desire has to be to adore him, to love him, to glorify him above all of our desires, all the things that we want. Remember, no one wakes up in the morning and is like, oh, 
finally arrived. I'm so obedient, right? Your kids don't wake up that way, right? Wives, your husbands don't wake up. I'm just kidding. Um, no, it's a gradual thing. It's done in the power of the Spirit, but it's through the choice of us to follow Jesus in the empowerment that has been given to us. To avoid the sins he tells us to flee from and to obey the commands he asks for us to follow. And there is blessing in this, friends. Blessing in fleeing from the sins we are commanded to flee from. And there is great joy in the obedience and following the commands that he has for us. The third thing that we see is we need to be confident in the justice of God. Chapter 5 begins in verse 1 and 7. It says, Come now, you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evidence against you and you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James's emphasis on the poor in this letter leads us to the hardest, harshest language in our section this morning, but probably the harshest language in the letter. James emphasizes the fact that judgment from God is coming. Verse 1 mentions miseries that are coming. <clears throat> Verse 3 refers to the last days. Verse 5 alludes to a day of slaughter. And the emphasis of God's end time judgment continues in verses 7 to 9. James says to be patient until the Lord's coming. In verse 8, he says the Lord's coming is near. In verse 9, we learn that the judge stands at the door. James is emphasizing that Jesus will come back, and when he does, he will do at least two things. The first is he's coming back to judge the sinful. It seems most likely, from these first few verses in chapter 5, the first six verses, they are addressed to unbelievers. James does not call these people brothers. You'll see in the rest of this text that he often uses the word brother as he's beginning to give rebuke or instruction. He doesn't use that here. And they are told to weep and wail, and that language seems very similar to that of the, the prophets who would pronounce on, on different pagan practices and nations. And yet, for believers, there are great warnings here as well, especially for us who live in such an affluent society, who are incredibly rich on a world perspective. And James brings four accusations against the unbelieving rich. The first is, they're going to be judged for hoarding their wealth. The rich were storing away their wealth, and James says that all the money, all of these possessions, all of the stuff that you buy and you don't even need is rotting. Its time will come. It will not endure. James is saying, even the thing you say is the surest use of your money in the world, even that is wasting away. These hoarded resources would eventually testify against these people about where their treasure was in their heart. The second thing is that they would be judged for cheating workers. In these times, there was a concentration of land in the hands of a very small number of of people, of landowners, and they were very wealthy. If the landowners were selfish or delayed in paying their workers, it was not uncommon for workers to struggle severely, being able to get even daily food or drink. The possession of the rich 
were accumulating while other people were literally dying. The third accusation for living in self was for living in self-indulgence. Look at the imagery in verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. These rich people were like cattle gorging on food on the day of their slaughter. And may God help us in our materialistic culture to see the warning of this imagery. These people were overfed and yet completely unconcerned. Is there any clear imagery in our culture where wealth is so concentrated? Well, literally, millions struggle for food and water daily. It's reported that almost a billion people, 890 million people, struggle with going to bed even just hungry. Never mind the millions that have severe starvation. The poor, the desolate are important to the Lord. They need to be important to the church. The fourth thing is they will be judged for condemning sin. One commentator notes that in Jewish culture, to deprive a person of their support was the same as murdering them. This is what the unbelieving rich were doing, and ultimately their oppression of others would lead to their own damnation. And though this section was written to non-believers, there is much that we can take as followers of Jesus from it as well. The second thing is that Jesus is coming to deliver the faithful. Now for a second, put yourselves in the shoes of a struggling, impoverished, and persecuted Christian in James' time, who may be reading his letter. You hear the word of God toward the unbelieving rich, and you know that he is coming to judge the sinful. But even more than that, you realize that he's also coming to deliver the faithful. In verse 4, James refers to the Lord of hosts, or the master of armies. And he's telling us here is that their cries and their pain are heard by God. Verse 7 says to be patient until the Lord's coming. He is coming to judge the sinful and to deliver the faithful. And we need to remember that, that in the midst of us living out our faith, that there is this day. We may see it in our own lives here physically on earth, but regardless of there is a confidence that there will be a justice that God has. He will deliver the faithful, and he will bring justice upon the world. It also is something that reminds us that we have great work to do in our communities, in our families, in our workplaces, that there are many that need to know the hope of Jesus. The fourth thing is that we are to be patient in suffering. Verses 7 to 11, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth? Being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The theme of this part of the letter is clear. Patience is mentioned twice in verse 7 and once in each of verses 8 and 10, while the words endured and endurance are used in verse 11. James gives us three pictures of patience to encourage us in. The first is very familiar to many of you. 
He says to be patient like a farmer waiting for the harvest. Agriculture, even here, as controlled as irrigation and technology has made it at times, is very much still dependent on God, right? Too much rain can cause the crops to rot. Storms and hail can ruin them. Too much heat can ruin the yield. No wonder farmers are always unhappy with the weather. This illustration, though, of a farmer reminds us that faith involves trusting God with what we cannot control. A farmer cannot determine when it will rain, and it will not. So James says, when it comes to the Lord's coming and the just injustice that surrounds you, like a farmer trusts God with what you cannot control, we should also be honoring God with what we can control. James mentions in verse 9 that they were grumbling against one another, friends, while we wait patiently and endure trials in this world, we will be tempted by sin. Tempted to sin against one another, to complain. Tempted to speak evil against one another. But we must resist this. The judge is coming and we want to be found faithful in what we can control. Like a farmer, we need to trust that the harvest that God will bring in his time will be worth the wait. Second, we are to be patient like a prophet of old, speaking the truth. Much like the farmer, the prophet reminds us that patience does not necessarily mean inactivity. A farmer doesn't sit back and just wait for rain. He gets to work on what he can do. Likewise, a prophet in the middle of persecution stood boldly and spoke out against injustice. Remember, much of the calamity of the Old Testament on the nation of Israel was because of the kings and their injustice towards people, of their kingdoms, their injustice amongst themselves and their sin. In the middle of hardship, we are to speak about the goodness, the greatness, and the judgment, and of the mercy of God. Times of suffering are often the best opportunity to speak a word for the glory of God. Third, we need to be patient like Job, hoping in God's purpose. James says, you've heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. Remember, it took 42 chapters for the purpose of suffering in Job's life to be revealed. And only at the end did he confess, Lord, I heard rumors about you but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I take back my words and repent in dust and ashes. This is a good reminder to us that whatever we are walking through is not the end of the story. The end will reveal that the Lord will indeed be very compassionate and merciful. So be patient and hopeful in God's purposes. The fifth thing is we need to be trustworthy in speech. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or earth, by any other oath, but let, you, but let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. In verse 12, James takes the, what seems like a hard left and starts talking about oaths. He says, your yes must be your yes and your no must be your no, so that you won't fall under judgment. Faith that perseveres is trustworthy in speech. The words from our mouths matter all the time. In every conversation, in every relationship, we need to be consistent and dependable and do our best to guarantee reliability. The sixth thing is 
we need to be prayerful in sorrow. Verses 13 to 18, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone, che- <clears throat> sorry, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray for him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James goes right back to the struggles he left off in verse 7 to 11. And he says that a faith that perseveres, that endures, is one of prayer. Similar to verses 7 and 11, where patient was very clear as the theme, prayer is the clear theme in verses 13 to 18. James says that we are to pray when we are hurting. And the context here includes all different types of trouble. Spiritual trouble, physical trouble, emotional, financial, whatever trouble, we are to pray. We are to give it to God. The patience and suffering that James has talked about only comes from God. That patience does not come from something you manufacture. It comes from the Lord, and we obtain it through being people of prayer. We're also to pray when we are happy. Our prayer should be filled with God's praise as we consider his goodness and his grace and his love for us. In verse 14, James says that we're also to pray with the elders. He says, if anyone among you is sick, he should call on the elders of the church and they should pray over him after anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The emphasis here, and I want you guys to hear this, the emphasis here is clearly on prayer. But the use of oil is also mentioned, and some have pointed out that the oils can be medicinal in nature, that was common for for olive oil to be used in medicinal things. Some denominations have propped the oil up as sacrament. I think the best way for us to look at it is symbolic, Uh, and it's a common thing in scripture for anointing to happen. That anointing um, symbolizes being set apart. And many times in Scripture it's done with oil. Sometimes it's anointing is done in other ways. But the idea is that this person would be set apart. And so the oil symbolizes setting them apart for the special attention and care from God that we are praying for them for. And the important part to remember here is that the power is found in a God who answers prayer. The oil is a symbol that we use to set that person apart as they come and pray. In verse 16, James says to confess your sins to one another. It's interesting, this is the only verse in the New Testament that commands believers to confess their sins to one another. And it's given in the context of praying for the healing for one another. So clearly the implication that James is trying to make is that a person, if a person has sinned against a brother, he or she should confess this sin to them and ask for forgiveness. We know from Scripture that sin can even cause some sickness. For example, taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner caused some in Corinth to become weak and sick and even die, according to 1 Corinthians 11. But we also should be careful with the idea outright that all sickness just comes from sin or unrepentant sin. Yes, sin can cause sickness, but it's not always necessarily because of sickness. 
just because someone is sick does not mean they have some unrepentant sin in some way. Jesus, James, and the entire New Testament will counter this idea. And at the same time, there's a recognition that the whole of Scripture teaches us that sin directly contributes to all kinds of sickness. Sickness and death are both ultimately the result of the fall and its effect of the decay on the world that we live in. In verse 17, James' example of Elijah's faith in 5.17 points out that our faith must always be in accordance with God's promises. This also helps us to answer some of the, some prayers, why some prayers go unanswered in light of verse 15. Everything Elijah did in 1 Kings 17 and 18 was in accordance with God's word. God said it would not rain, and it didn't. And then God said the rain was coming, and it did. God used Elijah's prayer as a means through which his word was accomplished. Elijah didn't demand that God do something he was reluctant to do. Rather, Elijah prayed in accordance with God's will and his word, trusting that God would keep his promises. So when it comes to praying for the sick brother or sister, let's say a friend has cancer or some other disease, illness, do we have a word from God that they will always live? No. In fact, God told Paul on one occasion that he would not heal him. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10 illustrates this. Paul says, I pleaded three times for the Lord to take this away from me. But he said to me, my grace is efficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. It was clearly not God's will to take away Paul's thorn. Finally, though, what about what Jesus said in John when he said, if you ask anything in my name, it will be given to you. The phrase in my name will help answer this for, for us this morning. To ask something in the name of Jesus, to ask something according to the name of Jesus, to ask something according to his will and to the word for his glory. And we have to remember this in our prayer. Regardless of what we're praying for, we can be praying earnestly for people, but we're praying in the name of Jesus for his will, for his will to be done, for his word to be accomplished, and ultimately for his glory. Not for our glory, for his glory. If someone is healed, if some circumstance is unraveled in in a way, it's to glorify Jesus. And we have to always remember that. So we pray. We pray through the difficulty of this world, knowing that it is broken, but that God is great, and we pray as people who want to see God's will be done and his glory on display. The last thing is we see that we need to be loving towards sinners. Verses 19 to 20, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whatever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Finally, James says to the church, Look out for one another. Brothers and sisters will wander from the commands of Jesus and from the gospel. And the key for these brothers and sisters to be there to help them come back. It's key for us to to be a family that is there for each other. Unfortunately, the church isn't always great at this historically. When someone is struggling, a lot of times that brings judgment and casting away. But the, the goal needs to be of love and restoration. Bringing somebody back to the Lord. Not back into our desires for them, but into the Lord's desires for them. It's important for us as individuals to obey God's commands, but we also have churches 
the communities of faith that we belong to, this community of faith. And God intends us to help spur one another on in obedience to God's commands. James speaks of restoration in verse 19, which is critically important as we work out faith and community. The work of restoring a brother or sister, he says, saves souls. James says it will save his life from death and cover sins. Of course, it's God that does the actual saving, but he uses us as a means. Believers in the church in this process to help people come to faith and stay faithful in their faith. This is why community is so important. The church is so important. Obviously, we all know the call to love others. But if we cannot love our brothers and sisters well, if we cannot show what it looks like for restoration and grace in the place of the Lord, how are we ever going to show it to the community? And so it needs to be something that we are confident in, that we are pursuing, that we are willing, that we are passionate about for this grace and this love and restoration to happen. That we would protect each other, encourage each other. That also takes us on the other side to remain humble when someone comes and speaks into our lives. We should do this through relationship, through the knowledge of people, knowing them, loving them. It should come through kindness and relationship. But there are times where we need to speak into people's life and say, hey, I'm just noticing this. And I'm coming because I love you. You know that I love you. And this doesn't always go well. I've had to, to do this several times in youth ministry. It doesn't always go well. I've had people come in and approach me and it hasn't gone well because of me. And later on I go, that person was right. That person was right to come to me. Right? And it happens. I'll say it. It happens to me even now. Like there are times I'm, I'm just sitting in Ed's office and he's like, hey, just, just think you should think about this. Oh, it's probably a good idea. Thank you. We need that in our lives. We need that accountability. As iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. The church is to be a community that helps spur each other on to faith and good works. It helps each other to remain faithful. God, in part, preserves his people through his people. The church is the one God-ordained means that God uses to keep us faithful with other people. He preserves us through the church, looking out for caring for and loving one another to keep one another from sin. God uses other believers in our lives to do this. We're all sinful. But God gave us community to help us walk through the challenges and the struggles, to encourage, restore, and care for one another. This should be one of the most attractive parts to the church, that it's a safe place where people can be loved, cared for, and that people will walk in life with others to help restore them. God has given the church to help preserve and to help each of us have a vibrant faith. So how do we have a faith that perseveres? Faith that perseveres is humble before the sovereignty of God, obedient to the will of God, confident in the justice of God, patient in suffering, trustworthy in speech, prayerful in sorrow, and loving towards sinners. Friends, we live in difficult times, in a troubled world, in a divided world, but we serve a great God who loves us, who preserves us, who's at work in us. So let's take serious our role in his kingdom.
to make his name known wherever we go. And may we persevere to the end and run the race that he has with us without faltering. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful this morning that we can come and we can hear your word.